I heard a story recently reported um, about another story, particularly a news story, that ran in the New York Times this week. On the Tuesday edition in the science section, the headline was, Breast Milk is Teeming with Bacteria Good. In this very strange article, uh, the author of the article goes on to report the wonder of breast milk for babies. It was quite hilarious to actually read the article and see their fascination that breast milk actually is good for babies. It's wondrous. It was quite stunning and to consider as this author was literally in awe. And as the author reported, the medical professionals who had done this immense research at the toll of millions of dollars to come to the conclusion that breast milk is filled with bacteria that is good for babies. In fact, the, this bacteria uh, helps babies to uh, not be obese when they're later, helps them in many ways. And what was so striking about the article, but not surprising, was that the article concluded with this kind of resounding point that this is brought to you by evolution. That the evolutionary kind of you know, ways has brought about this very unique situation where babies are cared for by their mothers. And while this has nothing to do with my sermon today, the point... That so often in our lives we appeal to some other cause, some other basis. And, and in evolution, of course, the, the basis of uh, our lives is in some sort of evolutionary process. Rather than pointing to a creator whose good design is reflected in that case of a mother providing for her child, that this miracle of microorganisms transferring between a mother and a child is actually a display of God's glory among us, no different than a beautiful flower or a tranquil, transcendent, beautiful sky. All of these are meant to point us to a creator, the great cause and basis of creation. Well, as we think about that, I think this helps us get our minds around what we think is the basis of unity. Particularly unity in the context of the local church. So often we might come to the conclusion that unity in a church comes about by natural means. That we gather because we all like Jesus. Oh, we all like music. Oh, we all like certain kinds of music. Or certain preachers. Or certain styles. Uh, we might like a certain type of denomination over another. We like our babies to get wet when they're infants. Others, children, we just baptize them when they get older. We might think that we are united by some other natural means. 
perhaps by economic status. We are in a middle class community, and so gathered is just middle class people. Or perhaps we gather and are unified because we all share some common identity in our race. A white church, a black church, an Asian church. Or we're unified in some other way. Everybody likes to wear suits. Everybody likes to dress business casual. Or it might be generational. We're unified around generations. An old church and a young church. I've told you this often. I think it's the most hilarious thing. Is when churches will do contemporary and traditional. And I think it's always funny when they have the contemporary church like super early in the morning. Like they don't quite understand. Young people don't want to get up early and go to church. <laughs> Why would you do that really early? Now a little uh, Easter egg hunt you could do is figure out which church on this road does that. All right, so you can figure that out later after church. And it's not this one. Um, but we can be united in many ways that are natural. This is why young people hang out with young people, right? So if we were to survey our teenagers today, they wouldn't be like, yes, I can't wait to go hang out with 80-year-olds. That sounds exciting. <laughs> and frankly, many 80-year-olds would say the same. I'm not really that excited to go hang out with these young people. Why? Because it is natural to hang out with those you are like. Who look like you and think like you. Who vote like you. That's natural. That's what the world does. But this morning we want to see yet a better way. That God has united together a church into one body who is not uniform. But who is united. So this morning, as I stressed last week, I want to stress again this week, unity does not mean uniformity. Our goal in unity isn't for everybody to think alike, dress alike, vote alike, and definitely not look alike. But rather... To see God's glory is in uniting diverse people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, from a different political persuasions, different economic positions, different racial backgrounds, uniting them together and conforming them into the image of Christ. So that what we look like isn't a donkey or an elephant, but what we look like is Jesus. That our shared unity together transcends what this world unites around. That what we reflect in our gatherings is the glory of heaven. And so the context of our passage this morning falls within Paul's uh, exhortations to the church. He's transitioned in chapters 1 through 3, now in chapter 4, 5, and 6. Uh, from theological foundations to now really thinking more about his ethical exhortations, what the church is to do. Uh, But in typical Pauline way, uh, before he, he gets going too far, he wants to pause and lay that foundation again. 
And so this morning, we're going to be thinking a little bit more about theology. We're going to be thinking a little bit more about who God is and how that shapes who we are. As he opens up this new section, he has exhorted uh, exhorted his readers to walk in a way that commends the gospel in their lives. And as Christians, the pinnacle way that you and I commend the gospel is through unity, not division. If you were to ask your non-Christian friends, I bet you one of the things they would say about church is something to do with division. Oh, those, those Christians, they just divide. All they do is argue. If you grew up in a Baptist church, you know that Baptists love to argue over dumb things like colors of carpet and walls, right? It's true, right? You all are laughing as a testimony to the reality of that truth. Dumb. And so, so often the reputation of the church is one of division, just like we heard the reputation of the church in Corinth was. Divided rather than united. And as Christians, we must pursue unity in the local church. And as we saw last week, that unity leads to maturity in Christians. And the reason why you will find churches divided is because they are filled with immature Christians. And immaturity breeds division, not unity. But as we are united, we grow in Christian maturity. And so this week, we're going to continue this theme of unity in the local church, thinking about the importance of the local church uh, for your Christian growth. So I invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4, if you've not already. Ephesians 4, found on page 977 in the Pew Bibles. And we're going to consider this morning verses 4 through 6. Verse 4 through 6. Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Spirit, There is one body... And one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Paul's point can be summarized in this way. As Christians, we are to pursue and maintain unity in the local church because that unity reflects the unity of our triune God. That when a church is divided, it says something about God that is not right. When a church is divided, it says that God is divided. But when a church is united, it declares to the world that our shared salvation has been received from a triune God. That our unity in diversity is a reflection of a God who is united, but yet diverse in three persons. So the purpose of our time this morning is to really see the sort of underbelly, the the foundational part of our unity. What is it that brings unity to the church? Why is it that God has done this? How has he done this? And so in our text, you will have noted, Paul outlined seven ones. He said the word one seven times. Before we get into that sort of outline, we're going to consider each one of those seven points of the sermon. Um, and I know you're scared, but don't be. It's okay, seven. Uh, but before we do that, we could organize it in three points, considering in three parts 
around the Spirit, the Son, and the Father. Notice here in the text, again, Paul could be organizing around them. Look at verse 4, one Spirit. Then in verse 5, one Lord. And then verse 6, one God and Father. You notice what Paul is doing here. He's connecting each of these uh, individual points to the work of that person of the, of the Trinity. So the Spirit is the one who unites the body together. In chapter 2 and verse 22, Paul writes, In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The Spirit's work is to bring us into one body. More than that, the Spirit is the one who brings the effectual call into our life. It's the Spirit that brings that call. One Lord connected to our one belief and one baptism, uh, our affirmation of the finished work of Christ, and and then baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. And then finally in verse 6, the Father. God the Father, the one who is supreme and imminent over all and sovereignly rules all. One author put it this way, since God is himself a unity of persons who are different but equal and ordered in love for each other, every church he gathers under Christ is to be a unity of different but equal persons who sacrificially love one another and serve one another often. How exciting to realize that our church community reflects our creator. So one of the ways, as I just mentioned, that we reflect God's character is through our unity. But I want to consider each of these in in their individual parts. I think it'll be helpful just for us to kind of flesh out a bit their meaning and understanding their life together. Since we're only considering a few words, I hope this is particularly helpful for you. So seven points. So if you're taking notes, they're just right there in front of you. Seven points, verses four, five, and six. First, you see we are members of one body. Members of one body. As Christians, we have been united to the universal church and also... To local gatherings, local churches. Uh, There is, in the mind of Paul, not a Christian who is not a part of a local gathering. Uh, Throughout the letter, Paul has pointed to this this metaphor of body. Uh, Look here in chapter 1 and verse 23, he writes this, uh, which is his body, that is the church, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The church is one metaphor that Paul uses of the church is a body. In that humorous kind of illustration we used last week about uh, Mrs. Hand and and Mr. Foot uh, not liking each other, uh, we're reminded that the metaphor is a human body. A human body. That we are one body. Paul goes on to develop that later in chapter 2 and verse 16 when he writes that he reconciled us both to God in one body through the cross. There Paul was teaching us that Jews and everyone else are ethnically diverse, but are united together into one body. Of course, this is a metaphor that Paul will develop in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. In chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, all were made to drink of one spirit. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So as a congregation, we are individuals, right? So we're not trying to create just sort of a whitewash automatons where everybody is the same. But we are individuals. So we do want to elevate individuals. Uh, You are a unique individual. But you are also a part of a body. Uh, You are maybe a hand or a foot, an eye or an ear. 
This is the metaphor Paul uh, famously develops in 1 Corinthians and says, you know, the hand can't say to the, to the mouth, I don't need you. The foot can't say, I don't need a head anymore. No, rather we are to see that we are united together as a body. And I just wonder, as a, as a Christian, as you gather each week with your local congregation or with this congregation, do you understand that if you are a member of this church, you are a part of the body, you are valuable. And so often in churches, preachers get kind of elevated. I get it in our position, where we are. But friend, my position is no more important than yours. No more important than your feet are to your hands and your ears are to your nose. Our tongues are to our noses to our tongue, right? right? We know that like without the nose, right, you can't taste anything. You know, we've all as kids done the fun thing. We're going to hold our nose and eat things, right? The things we don't want to eat, we hold our nose. We kind of hold it and we're like, okay, I can't taste these nasty green beans going down my throat. You can't have one without the other. It just doesn't work. And as a church, we can't just have one without the other. We can't have just all leaders and no servants. No, we need everyone. This body metaphor is so vivid in our minds and we carry it around with us every day, but we so often neglect it. And when we gather, we tend to gravitate towards those who are more important positions. And neglect those who are just servants. And I wonder how you do that in our gatherings. Do you avoid those that maybe don't have the positions of power and influence? Or do you gravitate to the ones who are quiet? Who just serve quietly without anybody ever knowing. They don't put a show on. They don't, they don't have a parade every time they do some good thing in the church. Maybe you're that person this morning who serves quietly without name or recognition, we don't parade you up here. Keep doing that good work. Keep serving the body. We love you and we thank you. So we're united together as one body. Now we can't choose who's in and who's out. We can't say, you know, like, uh, you know, you're just a little weird. I don't really like you. Did you know that that is a reflection, perhaps, that you're really not a part of the body? That when you point and say, you know what, so-and-so's not, that you're actually condemning yourself? Because Jesus says that his disciples are united. United in love for one another. Well, not only are we one body united, you see that Paul says here that we have one spirit. There is one spirit that we as Christians are indwelt by one spirit. What's Paul's point here? Paul's point is there's unity because the same spirit that's in me, if you've repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus, that same spirit is in you. And there's a commonality between us uh, so that we could be anywhere in the world and you come to a genuine believer who's indwelt by the Spirit and something miraculous happens there. Amazing. There's a kindred spirit about that that cannot be explained. 
People who you've never met before in your life, you start talking to them about your love for Jesus and about your church. And they begin to share with you about their love for Jesus and the church. And the, and the spirit that is in them is in you. And there's a, a sense of joy and wonder. Well, throughout the book of Ephesians, Paul here has been pointing to the work of the spirit. Perhaps in no other book in the New Testament... I, I don't know if Ephesians just isn't quite known for this, but Paul has some good theology about the Holy Spirit here in this book. In in Ephesians chapter 1, for example, look there in Ephesians 1.13, Paul talks about how it was the Spirit that we were sealed by. That when we heard the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, and believed in Christ, the Spirit sealed us. That the Spirit has a work of guaranteeing our lives. He goes on to develop that in, in letter. He prayed that, that he would give us the spirit of wisdom. That we would all have the same wisdom. And in chapter 2 and verse 18, Paul writes this. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. The point that Paul is making here and there is that you and I don't get to God multiple ways in different ways. It's only through the spirit. It's like we all have the same key and that makes us united. The spirit that enlivened my dead soul is the spirit that enlivened your dead soul. This is again what Paul would have what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 12, 13 for one spirit. We were all baptized into one body, Jew, Greek, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. There's a unity in our spirits, in the spirit of regeneration, the the, the spirit that brought life to us, unites us together in one body and gives us this one hope that we have. Paul goes on then in verse four, you'll notice that we were number three, we were called to one hope. The spirit of God not only united us together, but called us. Out of darkness into light. The effectual call of the Spirit. It was the Spirit who said, come and follow Jesus. It was the Spirit who regenerated our life and gave us the hope to which we have been called. In the book of Ephesians, Paul unites together our calling and our hope. The word hope here in the context of Ephesians is eternal life. The hope of eternity. The hope that when we die... God is going to welcome us to heaven, not cast us into hell. The hope isn't merely our hope, but rather what God has given to us in Christ. We'll see the same point that Paul makes here in Ephesians 4.1. That we are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. We have a common call. Now, we might have a diversity of testimony, right? You might have been saved when you were younger. Perhaps you were saved when you were older. Or perhaps your testimony is that you were saved in some radical way. You know, you were some drug dealer on the street and God radically transformed you. And the next day you just became a a wild evangelist for Jesus. Or your testimony is you had godly parents who brought you up in the church. And your testimony is there's never been a day I've not known Jesus. You know, friend, brother, sister, that second 
is just as glorious as the first. You were a sinner and God called you out of darkness into light. You know, so often in our Christian pop culture, we tend to elevate the dramatic. We tend to say, oh, look at that sinner who was saved. Oh, there was something sweet, I think. That's my prayer for my own children. I hope they don't have a radical conversion in that sense. I hope their testimony is there was just this one day the spirit brought life to me, not because I was out on the streets, but because I was a sinner in need of a savior. We have one hope and that one hope unites us together. There's a bond together. Uh, One of our ministry friends that we financially support in the city, Garden Community Church, they have a kind of a, a an arm of their church and they named it One Hope from this text. The point is this, that whether or not you grew up in the streets of Baltimore and you don't have anything and you deserve to be incarcerated your entire life and you probably deserve death. That the gospel of Jesus Christ is hope for you. The gospel isn't just for the people who drive nice cars and have good jobs. But it's for everybody. And that hope unites us together. It bonds us together. It should be what we talk about. You understand that if it is what you hope in, right? But see, this is what we do. I hope the weather's nice this week so I can have a good barbecue on the 4th of July. And so what do you talk about? Hey, how's the weather today? How's the weather going to be this week? I hope that the uh, Orioles might win a baseball game this year. <laughs> I hope they will. Right? And you, you can, you know, misery enjoys company, right? And you can just like, man, the Orioles, wow, I could probably hit a baseball, right? Uh, hope and I joke all the time because the Cardinals are not that much better. And, uh, and I, I get frustrated a bit. Uh, because I'm like, they're playing a kid's game and they just can't get it together. I'm like, it's a baseball and a bat. You hit the ball. It's not that hard. It's not rocket science, right? All right, we we might do that, right? But as Christians, we have a common hope which should pepper our conversations together. That's what we should talk about. That's what's going to encourage the sister who is struggling, Or the brother who is wrestling in sin is is reminding them we're in this together. We have a common hope together. We have one hope. Well, as Paul continues, number four, we submit to one Lord. We have the same Lord, Paul says. One Lord. There's not many Lords. Uh, The word that Paul uses there is a word that every Roman would have known. It would have been all plastered around the city in Ephesus. Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. But as the Christian church, what unites us and makes us distinct from the world, just as it would have made these Christians distinct from their Roman neighbors, is that they were saying, one Lord, Jesus Christ, not Caesar. And as Christians, what unites us is under the headship of Jesus Christ, his authority. We have one boss. 
We all answer to the same boss. I answer to the same boss you answer to. And that encourages me. We are united through this shared bond that we confess one Lord. And what brings division in the church, as we heard so clearly in the prayer of confession, is when we become Lord rather than Jesus. And you know where it happens? When preferences become principle. When your opinions about things are contrary to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can be passionate about our opinions. We can be passionate about what we think. That's why good Baptists can fight over whether or not we got this ugly green carpet or that beautiful red carpet. Look, we hear some testimonies from the 90s, right? One Lord. One Lord. When we come and gather, we gather under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We, uh, we gather under His authority. We have no authority to assemble here except for the authority that Jesus Christ has given us. This is why we don't come up here and do whatever we want to do. That we have someone that we answer to, and particularly as pastors, as elders... We have a unique responsibility to ensure that the gathering of God's people follows the word of God. That we will be held accountable as under shepherds. That if we are not leading God's people to submit to the Lord, and maybe to ourselves, that there is an ugly judgment day waiting for us. And that should give you great comfort as a Christian to know that the Lord Jesus Christ is Lord. He sovereignly rules and he will deal with the unrepentant. Paul here is declaring the supremacy of Christ in our lives and we submit then to one Lord. But not only do we submit to one Lord, notice what he says here in verse 5. We have one faith. One faith. Now this doesn't mean our belief in something, our faith in Jesus, but rather the content of our faith. That you and I, let me explain it. Let me explain it a little better than this. The reason why it doesn't mean our faith, meaning our trust in Jesus, is because in a congregation gathered here this morning, there are, is going to be a diversity of faith. What I mean is, some of us are more trusting of Jesus than others, okay? Some of us trust Christ in a greater way than others. So if you're suffering from worry this morning, that, that, that is an indictment on your lack of trust in Jesus. And so a sister or brother might be gathered struggling, having some anxiety about something in their life. Well, that didn't demonstrate you have a lower threshold of trust in Jesus, and then others may have a high trust. They're just like, ah, Jesus is in control. It's all good. The point is the same. You don't, Jesus made clear, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you will be saved. And so the point Paul is making here isn't speaking about our faith, but rather the content of what we're believing in. That is the confession of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
The point that Paul makes back in chapter 1 and verse 13, in him, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. So it's the content of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. We all believe the same thing. This is what unites us as a congregation. And I I want to do something here to help us. Because this is where I've seen Christians really, really get derailed recently. Dr. Al Mohler is the president at Southern Seminary. He had a great article a number of years ago called Theological Triage. Basically what he said was when you triage in medical emergencies, you, you, there's a you know, one, two, three, four down the road. And then theologically, there are different areas. There, there's the, the, the sort of first tier level, what unites us uh, all together, what makes us Christians, right? The gospel. Uh, doctrines like the doctrine of Jesus Christ, that he is the eternal son of God, fully man and fully God. That is a first level issue. If you do not believe that Jesus is the eternal son of God, fully man and fully God, you are not a Christian. Oh, this is where we would divide between our Mormon and Jehovah Witness neighbors. If you do not believe in the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, that Christ died as a once for all sacrifice, this is where we would divide with our Catholic neighbors. If you do not believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, that the Scriptures are totally true, infallible, and without error, This is where we would divide from our liberal neighbors. Second tier issues might be issues of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Issues like uh, polity, uh, congregationalism versus Presbyterianism. How we would gather as a church, what kind of governance we would have. Whether we are going to sprinkle babies or whether we're going to baptize believers. Uh, Whether or not we're going to admit everybody to the Lord's Supper or only those who uh, have believed in Jesus. Those are second order issues. Third order issues might be things like the millennial reign of Christ. Whether we fall within the pre, the mid, post, ah, whatever you want to throw out there. Those are third order issues. As a congregation, we've we've decided not to divide, for example, over the millennial reign of Christ. You don't have to be a member of our church and have some preset prescribed viewpoint. You could, as long as you believe Jesus is coming again, literally and physically, visibly, I said that, uh, visibly, then, then you're good, right? I just wanted to point out here that Paul's point here, as Christians, we are united around the gospel of Jesus Christ. That someone might disagree with us in matters, for example, of whether or not a woman should be a pastor. Now, here's where you need to be careful and I need to be careful. What gives you the right to sit in Jesus' seat and decide that that is a first order issue? What saves us is repenting and believing in Jesus. Now, I think those who would affirm that are wrong. I could show them in Scripture where that's wrong. But I'm pretty sure that they've repented and trusted in Jesus and they're evidencing the fruit of the Spirit. They're a Christian. 
Affirm that. And we may not have church together. We might have to do church separate. That that seems to be an issue where we might need to divide over how we're going to do church. That would be kind of confusing. No different than we're not going to have a Presbyterian and Baptist get together. That would be a little weird, right? We'd be confused. We'd be baptizing infants and then baptizing them later. It would just be a mess. And so sometimes as Christians, we can look at denominations and we can conclude, oh my gosh, the church is divided and we're disobeying this verse. No, denominations simply mean that somebody's thinking. Denominations are good because it, someone is actually thinking about the Bible. And there's a reason why there's Baptist churches and Presbyterian churches and congregational churches. It's because we actually are thinking about the Bible and trying to follow Jesus the best way we can. But we still love each other. We're all still going to be in heaven. You'll remember the old story. Maybe you've heard this illustration before. Somebody was asked, they go to heaven. Are there Anglicans in heaven? No. Are there Presbyterians in heaven? No. Are there Baptists in heaven? No. There are only Christians in heaven. Period. Well, let us be united then as a congregation. Finally, we see, or not finally, but number six, quickly moving along, we have one baptism. One baptism. Now, many scholars have debated whether or not this refers to the rite of water baptism or to baptismal regeneration. It doesn't matter. Both of them point to the same reality, uh, whether it be water baptism or the baptism of the Holy Spirit, right? Because the baptism of the Holy Spirit and our water baptism are connected. In other words, when we are baptized as believers, it is an outward sign of an inward change, right? All our good Baptists learned that in Sunday school, right? Uh, That's what happens. Regeneration is visibly displayed through the waters of baptism. We reject what the church church of Christ teaches, that baptism regenerates us, that the water rite of baptism regenerates us. No, no, no. It's the Spirit's work that does that. Paul's point here is to say that we are all united in one baptism. And so this morning, if you have not been baptized as a believer, you're kind of like on the fringe. You got to get in. If you've repented of your sins and trusted in Christ and you've never been baptized, a friend talked to me after the church today. It's one of the things that unites us together. We don't feel it as much here, but, but in places of persecution... In areas uh, in the Middle East, it is the one sign, the one tipping point that will get your head chopped off if you participate in Christian baptism. Baptism unites us, and throughout Scripture, we are told that we were physically uh, baptized, spiritually baptized with Christ. Finally, here in verse number six. The seventh basis of our unity together is that we have one God. We serve one God and Father. But we do not gather to worship many gods, but we gather to worship the one true and living God. Uh, this here is sort of Paul taking from the Shema. Deuteronomy 6.4 Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
Paul here also is developing the theme that he began back in chapter 3 and verse 14. Just let your, your eyes gaze there for a moment. Chapter 3, verse 14. As Paul begins his prayer, he says this, For this reason I bow my knees before who? The Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. That's that word Father. He's used it throughout the letter. God our Father. And, and as Christians, we're so accustomed to hearing that. We're so, you know, just kind of immune to that language. But God is your Father? That is a very unique claim. Unique to Christianity. Unique in relationship. Unique in care and love. If we have one God and one Father, what does that mean? But we're all siblings. And if you grew up in a home that had, you weren't an only child, you have brother and sisters, you know that oftentimes brothers and sisters fight. Brothers and sisters don't get along. But at the end of the day, we're all family. We're still brothers and sisters. And as Christians, we have the same father. We're united together. And you don't get to choose who's in the family. That's God's job, not yours. Your job is to love one another as brothers and sisters. In our conversations with one another, the way we deal with one another, the way we relate with one another in our conversations, in our care for one another, let us have that view in mind. That's a brother. That's a sister. Of course, Paul would use this to exhort Timothy. Uh, treat the older women as mothers, the younger as sisters. Don't lust after your sisters. Don't disrespect your mothers. And as Christians in the church, our hope and our view is that we are brothers and sisters with one father who lovingly cares for us, who reigns over us. And, and Paul concludes with this grand exhortation in verse 6 that the father is over all through all and in all. Paul here is building off of some Old Testament theology. In Psalm 139, the psalmist says this, Where shall I go from you? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand Hold me. We have the same Father who loves us and cares for us. It's one of the ways that unites us and brings us together. As Christians, we must pursue unity in the church as a means to display God's glory to the nations. We must trust and see that these seven points are the basis of our unity. It's not because we all have some love and affinity for something in this world. But what unites us this morning is our common pursuit together. Our, our understanding that we are one body. That we have been called by one spirit to a hope of glory. That we have one Lord that we serve. One faith, one baptism, and one God and Father. It was over all and through all. Amen.
Father, so often in our lives, we have led division in the church. We confess, perhaps through our lack of love, our rudeness, our words, we have brought about division rather than unity. So often we have relegated unity to some unimportant thing rather than seeing it as essential to our growth as God's people. Father, we freely confess this morning that so often we have relegated the local church as unimportant to our following of you. And Father, my prayer this morning is as a congregation, we would see the importance of gathering every Lord's Day under the the Lordship of Christ as a palpable and visible display of the unity of our triune God. Father, help us to see in every act of love, in every way we serve one another, is a display of the unity of of your unity. Help us to have that mindset among us to serve others with humility and love, counting others more worth and value than ourselves. Help us, we pray, to display your glory for our good and your eternal glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.